We're still in our summer series because I still think it's summer. And so, um, despite the cool temperatures, I'm going to stick with it simply because we haven't finished the book of Habakkuk and I don't want to leave you hanging. And so, we'll, we've got this week and then we've got next week to finish the, the book of Habakkuk. But let me just kind of bring you back to where we're at in the book of Habakkuk because in this book of Habakkuk, you've got this prophet, Habakkuk, who has a complaint to God. He's really torqued off that Judah, the southern kingdom, is acting and behaving in wicked and evil ways. They're doing everything contrary to what God's word had told them to do. They're, they're uh, involved in idolatry. They're involved in child sacrifice. They're involved in um, homosexuality. I mean, all the kind of things that God says, don't do that, they're doing it. And now Habakkuk, he's really mad at God because he's going like, how can you just stand by and idly watch your people behave in this way? And God's going like, well, Habakkuk, listen, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe. And so really what I want you to do, Habakkuk, is... You just kind of need to kind of keep maybe your eyeball open and take a look and see what's going on around you. Because I am going to bring the Chaldeans, this wicked and evil nation, they're going to come and they are going to bring discipline to my children. So keep your eye on it. It's coming. And so Habakkuk's like, wait a minute, God. You can't bring the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, because they're far more wicked than Judah is, and, and that's out of your nature, your holy nature, to bring a wicked, wicked, wicked people to, to bring punishment to your people. It just doesn't make sense to me. And God's going, well, of course it doesn't make sense to you, because you can't see the whole picture. The only thing you see is what's happening here and now, right now in your life, at this very moment. You can't see 10 minutes down the road. You can't see what's going on in the other counties. You can't see what's going on on the other side of the planet. I can see all of that. I know all of those things. So your scope is very limited. And so what, what has happened with Habakkuk is in his complaint against God, he's, he's, he's looking at God and he's got this horizontal understanding and worship of God. So what he's doing is he's got this horizontal view of God, and he's just looking at what God can do. And so that's, that's what's going on of, of what God can do in this situation. And God starts to explain to him in, in unbelievable ways how he can't really understand it. So God starts to show himself to Habakkuk in a really high-ended cosmic way, and then Habakkuk's horizontal theology, all of a sudden, it goes vertical. And now, he's not just seeing God for what God can do, now he sees God um, for what God, or who God is. That's what he's changed. And here's the thing about it, is, is that there are so many people who just look around and they're looking to see what God can do for them. What has God done lately for you? That's kind of the question that Habakkuk had. He goes, what are you going to do for me? And then all of a sudden, as God explains the whole thing, as God reveals himself to Habakkuk, all of a sudden now Habakkuk's going like, you're more than what I see you doing you are this awesome, magnificent God, and I'm going to start worshiping you for who you are. And it changes his whole perspective. And, and so for us as believers in Christ, we do both. We worship God for what he does, but we also worship God for who he is. And that's what we find as we step into relationship with Christ. We get the full counsel of God working in our lives. And it makes a whole big difference as we press on in life. And that's what we talked about the last time I was with you. 
about how we are experiencing more than just what we see on a horizontal level, we now get to step into and experience and encounter the living God on this vertical plane. And it should absolutely transform our lives. So what we talked about last time I was with you and what we're going to talk about today in chapter 3 of Habakkuk, it really boils down to this. It's all part of a song. It's a song. It's a weird song. I'll tell you that much. It is really weird. Habakkuk 1 or 3.1, the last word in that first verse is shiganoth. And shiganoth is a musical instrument. And so he's, he's written this song to God that he's going to sing. And I'm going to tell you, uh, all that we read this week, all that we read the last time I was with you, and all that we're going to look at next week is compiled into this song that he wrote and he sings to God. And I'm going to tell you, it's a strange thing. It's strange indeed, this song. So let me read it to you. You can follow along. Starting with verse 4. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. And there he viled, veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sunk low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and withered. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood in their place at the light of your arrow as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. What a weird song. This is, this is not the one you want to start singing as you travel on vacation. Let me finish it. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows, the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of the mighty waters. I'm telling you right now, this is one of the strangest songs that you will ever hear anybody sing. And the Chaldeans are on the brink of invading um, Judah. And because of that, now, all of a sudden, Habakkuk remembers God has not relented. He, he's made his complaint. He says, you can't do this. And God says, look, you just take a look at what's going on around you. Keep your eyes open because you're going to see what I am going to do. I am going to do something that you did not expect me to do. And what he does is he helps um, Habakkuk to remember who God is. He says, you know, if you think I'm moving too slowly, I'm not. I'm going to do these things. And so what he's doing is he's telling him the Chaldeans are approaching and they're coming and they're going to make things tough, really hard for Judah in an extremely painful way. And Habakkuk now is singing a song about the path of the faithfulness of God. That's what he's doing, impending doom. And he's not cringing. And he's not hiding. He is now singing a song about the faithfulness of God. In verse 5, you have God appearing to Moses, veiled in power. You start getting into verses 6 through 15, and over and over again, you have the reminders of God's faithfulness. Who parted the Red Sea? God did. Who stopped the River Jordan so God's people could go through it? God did. Who drove out the giants of the land of Canaan? God did. And Habakkuk is remembering 
that being delivered from slavery, being brought, out of, brought into the promised land, was God. God did that. God created that. God enabled that to happen. They didn't have power. So when he talks about pestilence and plagues, how did they get out of Egypt? Did they rise up and, and go into battle against the Egyptian army? No. It was God bringing the pestilence and the plagues. It was God bringing the darkness and the plagues of frog and the blood and the cattle died and then the firstborn sons died. Pestilence and plague. Pestilence and plague brought the people out of slavery. He parts the Red Sea. He parts the Jordan River. He drives out the giants in the land. That's what God does. So Habakkuk's point is, God, you did that. We didn't do that. That wasn't us. That was you. All this stuff, all the churning, all this stuff in history, in the darkest part of our history, and you bringing us out of slavery, you doing battle against the nations, you have more power than we have. In fact, there in this passage is even a reference to when the, the sun and the moon stand still. Because God, you remember Joshua, he led the people into the promised land, and then God told him, I want you to completely destroy the Ammonites. And Joshua says, okay, God, we're going to do it. And God says, no, I want you to understand what I mean when I say to destroy them. It doesn't just mean kill every human being. If they have a dog, kill the dog. If they have a cow, kill the cow. Don't touch any of it. Don't take any plunder for yourself. Burn it down to the ground. Annihilate that nation because they are so wicked, they will bring a curse on your nation if you don't. And so Joshua, wanting to be faithful to God, says, let's do it. And they're outnumbered, like, unbelievably. Like, the, the, if you were to go to Vegas and see what the odds of them winning were, it was like a thousand to one that they would lose. And yet, as Joshua trusts God and their little army takes after them, they put the Amorites to flight. And they're starting to take off. But all of a sudden, Joshua's like, uh-oh, we're running out of daylight, and I'm not going to get this job done. And so he cries out to God, and he says, can you give me three more hours of daylight? And God says, you want daylight? I'll give you daylight. So the sun stood still, and the moon held its place, and Joshua finished the task that God had given to him for the glory of God. That is what Habakkuk is singing about. He's talking about the faithfulness of God. He's talking about all the things that God has done and, and bringing them into this place. <clears throat> so Habakkuk, in his, in his impending despair, is remembering the faithfulness of God in dark days past and is rejoicing in God's faithfulness. Let me ask you a real quick question. Have you had any dark days in your past? Any difficulties? Any really hard things? Where was God in that? Maybe for you, you're going like, that's part of my problem. I didn't see God's hand. And that's okay. That's okay. Maybe some of the rest of you are going like, man, I thought that God wasn't there. And then when everything had come to the end and I looked back, I was able to see where God had stepped into my life at various places. That's remembering the faithfulness of God. So here's one of the things that is a bit of a, a pet peeve of mine within the evangelical world. And it's this idea that comes to the consciousness of some people who fall under the umbrella of evangelicals. It's the idea that when things really fall apart, that we should be glad about it. That somehow it comes off as trite and fake. And it's kind of like, oh, you know, my, my house just burned down and my car blew up. Praise Jesus. It's so wonderful. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to hear Habakkuk, because Habakkuk's going to get really honest. And if there's a lesson you can learn from Habakkuk, it's how to be honest 
with God and still trust Him and still worship Him and still find a place in your life to where you say it's all about you and it's not anything about me. So here's what, what Habakkuk says. Look at verse 16. Here's what he says. Here's his honesty. He's being straight with this. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Now, I, I want to say this as often as I can to help try to dispel the illusion of control, but there is no one in this room whose life can't be altered simply by a phone call. Do you know what I mean? The phone rings at oh dark 30, you pick it up, and it says, Hi. I just want to let you know that there's been a bad accident and your child didn't make it. It might be, hey, your dad's in the hospital or your mom had a heart attack and she didn't survive. It's that phone call that changes your life. And the thing is, is that phone call doesn't come to your house, does it? That always is supposed to go to somebody else's house, not your house. But I'm going to tell you, there isn't anybody in this room that is immune from receiving that phone call. You know why? Because we don't have control over those kinds of things. You can, you can go and buy a tank for your kid and say, here's what you're driving to school. We, it doesn't fire, so don't shoot at your math teacher. And, and you can do everything you want to protect your kid. You can sneak a little tracking device on their phone so you know where they are absolutely every moment of the day. You can put a bug on there to hear their conversations, to see their texts. You can do everything you want to to try and keep the bad things from happening to your life. But in the end, you don't have that kind of control and you could be the recipient of that phone call. It's that kind of thing that it will take the wind out of your lungs. You'll have your legs taken out from underneath you. You will, like Habakkuk, you will feel the rottenness in your bones. Your lips will quiver. You'll be overwhelmed with sorrow. That's what Habakkuk says he is feeling. This is not a spirit of, woohoo, let's praise Jesus. It's the reality of life when it hits us in the gut. Rottenness has entered my bones. Don't you love the honesty of Habakkuk? I certainly do. But look at the next line, because I think it's really key. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invaded us. So remember God told him, this is what's going to happen to Judah. But then all of chapter 2, he's going to, dis, going to dis, uh, describe how he's going to destroy the Chaldeans. So Habakkuk's got this thing where he's saying, uh, do what you're going to do, God, because I know you're for us. You're not against us. I know you love us. I know you're leading us where we ultimately need to go and that in the end... Justice will prevail. And he rests in that, despite the fact that the Chaldeans are on his doorstep. Now, I've told you this as often as I can tell you, that the Bible is not about you. It's not a self-help book. The Bible is one story. And that story is God reconciling to himself all things through Christ Jesus. That's the story of the Bible. It's not about you. So when you try to interject yourself into the Bible, you're trying to take the place of Jesus. So when you look at the story of David and Goliath, it's not the story about how you overcome the giants of tribulation in your life. Because then that makes you David, and that's the role of Jesus. And you've placed yourself in the middle of that, and... and Everything comes unglued. And so, 
You might be thinking to yourself, well, you don't really know my boss. He's a total jerk. Just give me a slingshot. I'll take care of him. Or you go, my financial things, they're really hard right now. But guess what? I can handle that. I can take care of that. But the thing is, you're not David. You know who you are in that story of David and Goliath? Who we are, who I am? We're the cowardly Israelites stuck over in our tents going like, that big old giant's coming out again and he's saying really mean things to us. What are we going to do? That's who we are. Jesus is David. And the slaughtering of, of the giant is the giant of sin and death. Get this. You're not the point. He is the point. So what do you do in a text where there is no Christ character? In places like Habakkuk 3, where you don't see a direct example of Jesus. What, what you do see here is you see a gospel rhythm that's getting established. A way of living for those of us who are in Christ, regardless of our circumstances. That's what chapter 3 is all about. Now listen, I've been here long enough in this community, and a part of this church, and I know that here today, there are, are people who are single, and they're doing really well in their singleness. They've got their Bibles with them. They've got their journal open. They're taking notes. And they're doing everything they can to love Jesus and walk with Jesus and live in community as God has called them to. There are some of others who your marriage is, is going really well. And that's probably because, well, you're just newlyweds. <laughs> the issues are coming. And, and you need to hook yourself up with some of those people who've gone through those issues and are doing well. It's really an interesting thing. And then there's some of us who have gone even deeper. We've got, and we've worked through some of the big things of life and we're walking and we feel good about life. We know we're with God. We know where we should be and we're in a good spot right now. And then there are others of you who are not in a good spot. You're not handling your singleness well. You don't have your eye where they need to be. You've got some sort of functional Messiah in a man or a woman that, that you think you're going to marry and it's going to make your life great and you're living miserably right now. Or maybe you've got kids that are driving you nuts because they're crazy. But you're here and you're playing the part, and you're smiling. And some of you have learned to play the game well enough that you've got your Bible, you've got your journal open, you're taking notes, and, and despite the fact that you're walking in a dry and weary land right now, your soul is dried up, you can put out the vibe that everything is just really good. I'm great. How you doing? Oh, fine, just fine. And on the inside, you're dying. And you are the ones that I worry about the most. Because when you learn how to play the Bible game, and your heart is far from God, you have doomed yourself to surface-level stuff. So really what we can pull from this text that we've just read, and it has implications for all of us, regardless where we find ourselves right now. So whether everything is well and there's money in the bank and we love our spouses and we're content in our singleness and our kids are doing well or our kids aren't doing well and there's no money in the bank and we're filled with a lot of happiness and, and notice I didn't use the word joy because for a believer in Christ, joy should be the transcending thing which means it should not be affected by our circumstances. Happiness can be stolen from you. You've got these people that want to suck happiness out of your life. Slap them in the face and tell them to move on. Not literally. I can just see somebody going like, hey, Pastor Ken told me to do that to you. <laughs> Not what I'm saying. What I, the point is, is if, if you're walking with Jesus, 
you've got this unflappable joy that's in your life regardless of the circumstances that's going on around you. And people should be able to look at you and go like, your life's falling apart and yet you've got this radiance about you. It's not you. The radiance comes from Jesus. So, what's being established here in Habakkuk that has implications for all of us is really this rhythm of remembering and rejoicing. So we have the, the rhythm of remembering and rejoicing. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this together and see how this gospel rhythm is what we need in our lives so that we start to remember who God is and what God has done and what he's accomplishing on our behalf and then rejoice in it. And I want to tell you three things that, that you always have to remember and rejoice in. And these things aren't, aren't going to be like um, rocket science. You're going to go like, oh, I already knew, I already knew that. So it's, it's going to be a good reminder for us what these three things are. And um, so let's move on. Here's number one. Remember and rejoice that God saved you. Okay? So the first one is God saves. He saved you. Now, th this is, is paramount to you understanding what it's about. Because if you came to faith in Christ, you might be thinking, well, I went to this thing, and I heard this message about Jesus, and I got up out of my chair, and I went forward, and I made the profession of faith, and I walked down the aisle, and I confessed my sins, and I did this, and I, 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 and so it really doesn't have anything to do with God that I became a Christian. It's because I went. Why did you get up out of your chair? Why did you say, I'm, I can't live my life like this anymore. It's got to be different. Why is it that you, you made that move? It isn't because of you. It's because the Holy Spirit of God was working in your soul, in your heart, bringing conviction and telling you that the way you're living life is going to be a dead end and it is going to be death. And so it was God who nudged you, who poked you, who said to you, don't do that, get up. And you have this uneasiness that's rolling around inside of you because you, you're just like, oh, man, I don't know. And how can I, and God, what are you doing? And, and is this me or is this you? And, and what we find out for those of us who have experienced the work of the Spirit in our heart, we know we didn't save ourselves. It was God who saved us. Ephesians 2 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. See, it wasn't you. It was the blood of Christ. If you're in relationship with God, if you are walking with Jesus, if you are looking forward to the day that you enter into glory, the only way you get there is through the blood of Jesus. It's nothing else. There isn't anything you can do. There's nothing there for you. Colossians 2. We were in Ephesians 2, now Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now here's the thing. 
When you're dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians says the same thing, you're dead. You know what dead people do? Nothing. It wasn't a trick question, okay? When you're dead, you can't do anything. When you're dead, you have no life. Life has left you. You're dead in your trespasses. You're dead in your sins. But the good news is, is God makes you alive in Jesus. Now, how does he do that? He takes what, was, what brings about death, sin, and he cancels the record of debt against sin. And in Hebrews, here's what, what he means by that when he says, he turned off, my paraphrase, he turned off the altar, he is no longer accepting any offering or sacrifice for sin because he has already paid for it in full. He canceled the record of debt and made you alive in Christ. So do you still think it's anything about you? It's not. Here's what I really like. I like that last line in that where he, he puts, he says this, he puts to open chain the rulers and principalities. You know what that's a reference to? Demonic activity. Now, you know what? We live in, in a Western hemisphere and, and we're, we're really educated people. And so, you know, all that demonic stuff, all that, that demons and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's just what uneducated people believe. But I will tell you that that stuff is as real as the chair you're sitting in. I've dealt enough with demons to know that they really exist. And, and, and don't think that you're exempt from demon activity in your life. Because guess what they want to do? They want to mess you up. You know how they mess you up? You know what their number one tool for messing you up is? Lying. The devil is the father of lies. He can't speak the truth. When he speaks, he speaks a lie. So do all the little demons. So when you hear stuff, you hear this little whispering in your ear, Pastor Ken's being mean to you. What he's telling you right now isn't the truth. You're not that bad. You're really pretty good. You can do this on your own. You really don't need Jesus. If you're hearing that right now, that's a little demon telling you a lie. When you hear the lie, you're not worthy. When you hear the lie that you have no value. When you hear the lie that you don't, you don't belong. When you hear the lie that you're ugly. When you hear the lie that you're too fat. When you hear the lie that you're too bald. Sorry, Fred. That's not from God. And demons are trying to mess with your mind all the time. They're trying to make you think things that aren't true. They're, what are they trying to do? If, you, if you're walking with Christ, they're not trying to get you to deny Christ. They're trying to get you to live your life without Christ. They want you to keep thinking, you know what, I'm okay. All that one time, I prayed that little prayer, you know, that sinner's prayer. I prayed that, I marked the X on the box, I handed it in. I'm all good with Jesus. But you live your life as though Jesus doesn't exist. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants you to believe the lie. That's his number one tool in working in your life. And so what we want to do is we want to remember and rejoice that it was God who saved us and the enemy has nothing over us. So here's the, the second thing that I, I want to get. You know, when, look, this is my paper, my sermon note right here. I'm supposed to get all of this on here and I always run out of room. I should start writing smaller.
All right. Second thing that we rejoice in is that God is sovereign over all things. I got it right. It's right there. Let me put it to you in different terms. That we rejoice that God has not abandoned us to our circumstances regardless of what those circumstances are. You've got tough circumstances going on. God hasn't left you in that. It doesn't matter how dark the night is. We have not been abandoned to wrestle with sin. We have not been abandoned to deal with dark days. We have not been abandoned to walk through hard things on our own. I just had a phone call, uh, not a phone call, a text from a guy um, this week, and he was relaying to me that one of his kids got into some pretty serious trouble, and he's having to deal with that, and his kid lives out, way out of the area, and at the same time, his dad, who doesn't live in the area, lives in the opposite direction, has been in the hospital three times with congestive heart failure, and they're taking him back to the hospital. So now he's got all this stuff where he feels like his entire life is falling apart. He, he had a great summer. Everything was great. Everything was wonderful. Everything was good. And now it seems to be falling apart. And it was so awesome for me to sit there and remind him that even though these are dark days, even though these things are hard and they're hard to handle, God has not abandoned you to them. He is walking you through this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For why? Your rod and staff, they what? That's right. The sovereignty of God in our lives. He, he works with us in, in the things that he wants to do. Uh, we get a little bit weird about what this looks like having God in our life all the time. So, um, and sometimes I think it's weak theology, or at least people get weirded out by it. Let me just take you to a very significant verse for our church. Matthew 28. You probably have all heard this before. You, you could probably even, you know, give it to me from memory. 28, 19 through 20. Go, Jesus said, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. So you've got this promise upon the ascension of Christ. He's going back into heaven, and he gives this to his disciples, to all disciples of all time. He says, go live missionally, focus on me, be about what I'm about, and I will always be with you. Now, it's how God is with us that most of us don't have a framework for most of the time because of what I would call and phrase charismatic excess. Let me, let me take you first to, to Romans 8 because this is really important to get this laid down there because it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Somehow, somehow, the Holy Spirit has been moved out of this place of, of our understanding of the Father and the Son, and, and we have this triune God and the Holy Spirit. And, and most of the time, here's what we would say, I'm really cool with God the Father. I, I really like Him. I really like what He does most of the time. Once in a while, He does this weird stuff, and it kind of weirds me out. And, and then Jesus, yeah, I'm cool with Jesus. Jesus is just all right with me. And, and that's where we go. We just, we're like, yeah. And then you start talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa. I like the idea of the Holy Spirit, but I'm just, I'm just not that comfortable with him. Let me see if I can help you understand this. How a lot of people have treated the Holy Spirit. It's like when you get the big family together for the family reunion, you know, you've got, aunts and uncles and cousins that you've never met. And you're going, you're looking at them, and you're going like, they ain't a part of my family. Because that's a one-branch family tree right there. 
And he got the weird Uncle Eddie. You know Uncle Eddie. He's the one that comes and he acts like he hasn't been drinking, but he has. And he makes the whole family reunion just a little bit uneasy because you don't know quite what to do with him. That's how people treat the Holy Spirit. Like he's weird, but he's not. He's not weird. Here's, here's what, what happens is, is that in, in Galatians, we have three entire chapters that deal with walking in the Spirit. And if you watch the life of Jesus, Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill a promise made, by, made in Isaiah 61. He is driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. He overcomes the temptation that both befell Israel and Adam and succeeds where they failed so that he would become what we would know as empathetic to our place in life. He understands what we go through, the temptations. And then he turns from, returns from the wilderness filled with the Holy Spirit. He begins ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit where he proclaims the good news of the kingdom. He drives out demons. He does miracles. The Holy Spirit is the fuel that makes the car run. And when you have no understanding of the Spirit of God outside of what you've seen on television at one o'clock in the morning, it makes you a bit nervous about who he is. And I contend that a lot of us lack power and fuel in our walk with Christ simply because we don't understand the role of the Spirit in our walk. If the Spirit empowered Jesus, how much more do you need him? If Jesus is using the power of the Spirit to be obedient to God, how much more do you need him to be obedient? If Jesus is using the, the, the Spirit of God to do what God's called him to do, how much more do you need the Spirit of God to empower your life? The, the living Spirit of God testifies that you are a child of God and He prays for you in your weakness. I could stop right there and we could all go home, right? Wouldn't you be happy just to walk out the door and go like, Fill me up, be the gas in my tank, get me going. I got a little bit more that I want to share with you. So, <clears throat> let's see if I can uh, strap this on and get it done quickly. And I'll, 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 I'll hit the highlights. Galatians 5, <clears throat> verse 15 through 17 says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here's where we go with this. Because if we're walking with the Spirit, as the Bible tells us to, then we're not consumed and controlled by a besetting sin. I, I maintain this is true with all of us. There is one particular sin that grabs hold of you in your life and it will devastate you. And the problem is, is that when, you, when you're not walking in the Spirit, you're not doing what God's called you to do in the Spirit, you're walking in the flesh. And then that sin is going to come in and that sin is going to eat your lunch. Oh, you might be able to manage it for a short while. You might be able to keep it under control. You might be able to keep it in the closet for a little bit. But eventually, because you're not walking in the Spirit, that thing's going to come out and it is going to mess you up. You can control it, but controlling it is not what God calls you to do. You know what God calls you to do with that besetting sin? Kill it! The Spirit of God is the ammunition for what we need to kill those sins. It's not just, you know, doing the right thing. It, it's, it's coming into the place where we recognize that it's not just the Spirit of God, but it is the sword of the Spirit. What's the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God. 
So the word of God becomes the ammunition by which we, we kill these, these things. And it's not just memorizing a verse that deals with the temptation uh, of the flesh, like lust. It's not just memorizing some verses that deal with anger. It's not just memorizing some verses that deal with fear. It's taking the verses, the word the, uh, of the Spirit, and it's the ammunition, and you put it into the gun, who is the Holy Spirit, and then you shoot that sin, and you kill it, and you destroy it. But it's only by the Spirit's work in your life. And that's the point of Galatians chapters 3 through 5. So we rejoice and remember that God saves us. We rejoice and remember that we have not been abandoned in any circumstance. And the last one, we rejoice and remember that God started this whole faith journey. So he started it. And he finishes it. He's the author of your faith and the perfecter of your faith and the finisher of your faith. And as it says in Revelation, salvation belongs to our God. That's where it comes from. So Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God began it. God will finish it. And it's, it's God wanting to do his anointing work in your life. The question is, were you really transformed by the work of Jesus in your life? Because there are a lot of people who are starting to think that maybe that you can lose your salvation. It's not whether you can lose your salvation because what God has done, he has guaranteed. God is going to make it happen. If he starts it, if he's going to start it, he's going to finish it. The question isn't whether you can lose your salvation. Here's the big question. Were you saved in the first place? Recently, in the last three or four weeks, there's been two, at least two, highly predominant men within the Christian realm who have um, abdicated on their faith. They said, I, I, I no longer believe what the Bible says to be true. Did they lose their salvation? No. I think that they were never saved because it comes back to the parable that Jesus teaches because he takes the word of God and, and, and the good news and he sows it. And some of it falls over here and, and the birds come and pick that seed up and they eat it and devour it. That's the enemy taking the word of God and twisting it and making it not the truth but making it to be some perversion of God's truth. That's when it falls on the ground and the birds get it. Then there's some that falls on, ro on rocky soil and it sprouts up quickly and then it dies when the heat comes out. And there's a lot of people who are going, yeah, I love Jesus. Yeah, I'm going to do this whole Jesus thing. And, and I, you know, I mean, let, let's me and Jesus, we're going to be buddies forever and it's going to be really awesome. And, and then the, the scorching sun comes out and they wither up and they're gone because they can't take the heat. They thought when they signed up with Jesus, they were going to get a nice spring day. But instead, they get a hot summer day, bringing the heat. They can't stand the heat, and so they take off. And then there's others who says, it says that the, the seed fell in among the thorns. It grew up, and the thorns choked them out. And those are people who look for Jesus to give them. them. Jesus is a means of, to an end for them. They're like seeing the shiny object that really has their heart's attention. And it's not Jesus that's their God. It's Jesus is the way to get to their God, the BMW or whatever it is that they're after. And they're going like, oh, Jesus, just help me get this. Jesus, help me get this. Jesus, you can help me get this. And then it chokes out. When we walk in the fullness of Christ, our lives are radically transformed. If you don't know a radical transformation, you haven't lost your salvation. You maybe just have never found it. You haven't answered the call from Jesus. Brings me to my next verse. <clears throat> Man, I got to really move here. Um, you know what? 
I'm going to, I got some other verses that I think are going to be far more important for us to hit up right away. So let me just move on to Romans 8. <clears throat> Romans 8, 28 says this, for we know that those who love, that, and we know that for those who love God, let me just stop right there for a second. Because are these promises when it says, you know, who love these, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. Are those promises for everybody? No. They're not for everybody. They're only for the people who love God. As much as I would like it to be for all of humanity, it, Paul makes it really clear here that it's only for those who love God. And the next line is going to be really important too. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. His purpose. Not your purpose, not your agenda. It's important to note that it works for the good of those, of the purpose of God. It's, again, it, you're not the point. The purpose of God is the point. For those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, all things work to the, let's go to verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, <clears throat> God predestined, he called. God gave you a call. And when you answered that call, he justified you. And then when he justifies you, he glorifies you. You were on the couch eating potatoes, chips. Maybe you were even drinking, this is being recorded, I know that. Maybe you were even drinking a cold beer, eating potato chips. And all of a sudden, it was the call of God. And you put down the chips and the beer. And you got up. And you followed after God because he called you. And then he justified you because you answered the call. And because he justifies you, now he glorifies you. And it all comes at the hand of God, the call of Jesus, and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Let's keep reading. And what shall we say to these things? This is awesome. If you don't write anything else down, if you don't get anything else today, this is it for you. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you ever doubted God's love for you, and it's easy to do, all you have to do is look at the cross. Because he did not spare his son to purchase you. He graciously gives you all things according to to that purpose. So <clears throat> we've got to stay straight on that one. We can't sneak off into the ditches. Let's go on to verse 33. Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? Okay, listen. No one can bring a charge against someone that God has brought into the place. Let's continue on. Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God's the one that that, that, that set it out there. He's already paid for it. He's already set us free. And, and that's what we're looking to do. We need to live as free men and women, not people bound up by tradition or by sin. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. So if Christ is the one that's raised, then he's the one that, that paid for it. You know that Christ's sacrifice was more than sufficient because it met the requirements of God and the way we know it met the requirements of God is because the tomb is empty. If, the tomb, if he didn't meet the requirements of God, he would still be in the grave and we would have nothing. But because of his death on the cross, it met the full requirements that God had Jesus raised from the dead, canceling all of our debt. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Do you get that? 
It, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be some tough stuff. There's going to be things that are getting into your life. God's the one that will sustain you through all those circumstances. The good news of the gospel isn't that you get money and a hot spouse and a long life. The good news of the gospel is that you get God. That's the good news. You get reconciled to God, and he's enough. He's the treasure. He's the gold. He's what we're after. That's what you get, and that's what we rejoice in when we get God. Now, let me read a couple verses, then I'll tie this up with a nice, neat little bow. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him, who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. And what Paul likes to throw that in there, nor things to come. Do you know what that really means? He says, listen, God's got you covered in the past. He's got you covered in the present. And he's got everything covered thousands of years from now. So just in case you think of something in 3,000 years, God's already got it covered. So just forget it. Trust God in that nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So if we put all three of these things together, if we, if we put these three things, we know that God's the one that saved us, that he is sovereign over all things, and he's the starter and finisher of our faith. We put all three of those things together what we're talking about is that our life cannot be shaken if we're living there. You know where all that comes from? I've been waiting to do this the whole time. All of this right here, the rhythm of the gospel, the rhythm of the gospel is all found right here at the cross of Christ. This is it right here. It's all about Jesus. That's what it is. If your life is running amok, if you're finding life hard, what I want you to think about, what I want you to do is remember and rejoice. Today when you go home, here's, here's your homework assignment for this week. I want you to have a conversation with someone who knows you really well. That could be your mom or your dad. That could be your husband. It should be your husband or your wife. They should know you really well. It should be your best friend. It should be a colleague, someone who really, and you trust them. Here's the question I want you to have a conversation around. How has the, Christ, the cross of Christ transformed my life? It's not the question you're answering for yourself. You don't get to go like, well, this is what I think. Because you're going to paint yourself in a, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to make yourself look better than you are, or you're going to make yourself look worse than you are. So have a conversation. How have you seen the transforming work of Christ in my life? Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that we can rejoice and remember all these things, that you can establish this gospel rhythm in our lives, and it is unshakable. It is the thing that you give to us that is so rich in your mercy that you have, you have saved us, you look after us, and you will not only start it, but you will finish it and bring it to a, a grand closure one day. And so we thank you for that. And I thank you for these men and these women we even thank you for this great book of Habakkuk and that he has shown to us the, the rhythm of the gospel that we can live in our lives every day. We want to thank you that you in your mercy, no merit of our own, have turned our hearts and our minds towards you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here today in this room that they may feel like they just don't measure up and that they, they just can't get it that you, by your Holy Spirit, would come and gently, lovingly, as you did with Habakkuk, have a conversation about you are greater and better, more magnificent than anything in their life. Help us to remember that you haven't abandoned us. Help us to remember and to turn our eyes to you and our hearts to you. 
and that you're here, that you are not far off, but you are right here with us, and that you would help our hearts and our minds to remember what we easily forget. We pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.